Hello and welcome to BakaCast for the... You know what? Week of November 9th, 2017. 5th and 6th. I am your host, Dustin, and with me today is Larry. Uh, yeah. Hi, guys. Uh, Ben. Yo. And Aaron is here as well, of course. Somewhere. I lost my chirping crickets recording again. As always, you can find show notes for this episode at www.projectharohi.net or www.audioentropy.com. And hey, let's start this see uh, this week out with Kino's Journey, episodes three through five. I'm really glad I watched episode three because that was really funny, actually. Uh, Land of the Roving epi- Dalek. Yeah, basically, episode three of Kino's journey is essentially like Kino gets in a giant, a giant like cylinder tank that houses a city that like they can't. I assume they can turn, but probably not very well. Uh, and it just kind of goes, and they they hope they don't run into anyone important. They give them warnings. I mean, surely yeah. that's enough. Yeah, and also they're invincible because they come across a big, like, uh, essentially, like, sort of feudalist sort of area is implied to be feudalistic, um, where they're like, no, you can't come through, and they're like, well, you kind of don't have a choice. (laughs) We're just, we weren't asking for permission, we were warning you. You should probably get out of the way now. Uh, And it's kind of funny um and it kind of does there there's sort of like this question that hangs in the air in the episode of like you know is it really okay to be in this city and they make the point that like all cities interfere with nature and other humans in some way Uh, and the goal is to just interfere as little as possible um, to cause as, as little convenience inconvenience as possible. Uh, which I think is p- probably a good point, like a good thing to consider, just delivered in a very sort of ridiculous, almost sci-fi-esque way. Yeah, the, 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 the level of technology they have in that uh, moving city is pretty up there. Yeah, it's weird how... Like, just certain elements, most elements of Kino's journey is very, it's very pastoral. Like, there are some elements of modern, like, mechanisms, but typically it's it's not a technologically advanced world. But then every so often you get things that are, like, really advanced. And you're like, okay, that's weird. <laughs> um, I think the funniest part of the episode, though, was where it's revealed that Kino had basically attempted to pass through the big walled-off country before, but they were asking for, like, a super high toll. And so Kino deliberately waited for the big roving Dalek town to come across so they could then enter into that city and just get through that way (laughs) as a sort of Keikakudori moment. (laughs) Yeah, right. 
you know, yeah, that was the thing. It's like in this particular case, like the you know the country they were running through was a bunch of douchebags, basically. But but what if it hadn't been? Yeah, like what if what if they had been douche? What if like they had been nice people, and the town had just trampled all their wheat fields anyway? Um, because that's essentially what happens is the town runs over their agriculture. Yeah. Are bad. Like I, I guess you could harvest as much as you could beforehand, but it kind of like, kind of screws over minutes. that city. Like you pretty much have to come up with like a quick diplomatic agreement where the people in the Dalek city just throw food out the window as they pass by. Yeah, <laughs> they're just like parachute down food. Yeah, yeah. It's like here, here's your recompense for us screwing up your crops this season. And speaking about that, at the end of the episode, as they're moving away, the guy gets on the speakerphone again. He's like, hold and accept negotiations. <laughs> we yeah. require recompense for traveling through our country. And the response is just like, nah, we can't do that. Bye. Yeah, because apparently if they just stop the city for too long, it explodes. Yeah, which is kind of weird. It's, because... it's like a really low-intensity version of speed. Yeah, it's a very bizarre episode, but like they, I really they liked have it. super lasers, but there's no way for them to vent the uh, <laughs> the heat buildup. Yeah, couldn't they just like shoot the super lasers into the sky? Like use those as a heat sink? I don't know. Who knows how weird ancient technology works? They probably don't even know really. They just know how to press the buttons. Mm-hmm. But yeah, episode three was weird, but very good. Whereas episode four was also weird, but kind of in a bad way, in that I wasn't exactly sure why they chose to structure it the way they did. Wasn't the other thing about episode three? That as they're being shot at, they're just drinking tea, up until they start shooting at the mural. Oh yeah, the children's mural. They're like, no, they can't destroy our beautiful children's art. Yeah, so Kino, yeah, so Kino pitches in, Okay, well, if I just uh, disable their missile, disable their missile launchers, <laughs> then it'll yeah. all be good, right? Yeah, if I if I just snipe their missile launchers, then we don't have to melt them with a giant laser. <laughs> and then snipe the missiles out of the air. It does say something probably not great about that city, though, that they would consider. If, melting people with a giant laser because they're ruining a mural, though. Like... I mean, yeah, they just... <laughs> they just don't stop for anything. Yeah, there, there's maybe a little bit too much detachment going on in that city. Uh... <clears throat> but yeah, it's... Hmm. Epis- can, can we talk about episode four? Sure. Episode four is an episode where... Um, the prince is the main character. Um, I can't remember his first name. Shizu. I know the dog's name. I'm sorry? Shizu. Okay, Shizu. I know the dog's name is Riku. Um, but yeah, it follows Shizu around. He, like, stumbles upon this giant floating city that's a ship. Uh, and it's falling apart. 
and he's like, okay, well, this clearly can't be good. There's a bunch of sections that have been flooded. They, like, give him a... They, like, assign him a little girl to be his guide, basically. Um, and there's this segment where, like, he, he's like, okay, well, enough is enough. These people are going to all drown if I don't do something. So I'm going to approach the council and tell them, like, look, you guys need to do something about this. Uh, and Kino stops him. And they have a fight. But then Kino's just like, alright, you can go meet the council, I guess. No, it was that the council basically threw her out. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. The count. Yeah, the council threw her out. And then she's just like, oh, well, alright then. Yeah, so then yeah, she... We'll, yeah, we'll then see Kino's, about this. Yeah, then Kino doesn't care anymore. Uh, and so... Then the council is all like, well, do you want to be king then? And she's just like, yeah, I guess. And then they all disappear. And then at the very end of the episode, when the when Shizu basically piles the ship to shore to like get the people off so they don't all drown, and the people are like, oh, I don't like this whole weird land thing. Yeah, it doesn't shake. This is weird. And they get back on, and then they just go. Then we get Kino ex- exposition dumping to us. Well, actually, I guess it's not. It's not Kino. It's uh, the uh, their Motorod. Hermes. Um, Hermes. 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 Yeah, Hermes is the one who does the the exposition dump. But like, that's when we actually get the backstory for the city, where apparently it's a bunch of like. Like, everyone was a bunch of kids who grew up on the ship, and the council, the original council, were, like, AI? Am I remembering this right? Because <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. Uh, and, but the AI, like, didn't really know how to, you know, be guardians, and the kids, because their kids didn't know how ships worked, so they didn't know that it even needed repairs and that's supposed to be a lesson i guess in you know don't assume things apparently because shizu ends up like being sort of the villain in the eyes of the show (laughs) and then the little girl stabs him but it's okay because he doesn't die he gets better uh even though it probably would have been easy for Shizu to just say, hey, look, it's fine. We're just going to be here temporarily. I just want to, like, repair the ship first. <laughs> like, just stay on shore for a month or so, and then we'll be back out. Like, So, there's a few things uh, that are interesting about this episode. Yeah. One, uh, the part of the novel that covers this is really, really long like four to five times longer than the normal stories all right that's what i figured because it felt super rushed the way it is and the exposition dump at the end by hermes doesn't happen there that's also what i figured also the entire thing is uh done from uh riku's perspective huh i think i would have preferred that yeah like I know I said that I, I I liked the sort of different way they did the Colosseum City, but I think adapting that 
this particular ship arc into a single episode did not do it any favors like at all um i can see glimmers of an interesting story here but it's compressed so thoroughly that it's essentially like just a skeleton um there's not any meat there it's just the basics of here's the city concept and then here's the resolution as done through exposition um it's just very very sloppy yeah it was it was pretty disappointing yeah which is a shame because like it's a really interesting concept and i if they had just done a straight adaptation of how the novel does it it probably would have been pretty good uh but yeah just trying to compress that whole thing into a single episode was just a very poor decision i think uh, what do you think ben i thought oh, have you you didn't watch it i right? haven't watched episodes four and five yet right so i will uh render my judgment later but okay. uh i liked episode three a lot <laughs> yeah no that was good it was super good um Episode 5 is a little better, um, but also, like, episode 5, episode 5 itself also has sort of a weird structure to it, where I thought it was going to be about something at first that it just wasn't about at all. Like, episode 5 starts out with Kino and Hermes meeting another motor rod, except this motor rod has lost its owner, because its owner died. And now it's just, like, sitting in a museum as horribly <laughs> depressed and, like, basically ask Kino and Hermes to commit assisted suicide. Yeah, either take him or kill him. I'm like, whoa, okay, <laughs> that got dark. And then they're like, no, we can't do that because then we get in trouble. And the Motorola's like, oh, I see. And then they just leave, and then that never comes up again. I'm like... Well, he talks All to right. the kid about it and, <laughs> yeah, tell, I guess. and tells him to basically go check out the Motorrad. Maybe you can do something with it. Oh, because the right, whole thing yeah. with Kino is sort of a non-interference as much as possible. Except when Kino wants to murder a Colosseum king. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Like, like I said, by compressing <laughs> that part into one episode, you kind of lost the backstory to that. Uh, but yeah, like, it it just felt weird, because, like, there's this sort of subplot with the Motorrad, and it's like, and then that, I guess, gets subtly resolved, and then they never come back to it, and it's like, okay, and now the rest of the episode is about these two lovers who lie to each other, and they know that they are lying to each other, and they both know what the truth actually is, but they lie to each other just because... Well, no, no one knows that the hero is lying everyone thinks he's genuinely um uh messed up and the people of the town don't know that she is the princess i mean yeah that that is true so uh, to to clarify the people of the town don't know that she's the princess they also think that he is he has genuinely lost his mind uh, however, the he knows that the princess is lying to him, and that she's actually the princess. 
and the princess is the only one i don't think the princess knows that he is also lying to her no basically he knows that the princess and the town people are lying the princess knows that the town people are lying and the town people don't think they're lying or rather they're lying about what happened to her yeah i it, it's a like nesting it's, doll of lies yeah it's an interesting setup but also like it seems to be portrayed as romantic but it's actually just pathetic really <laughs> uh because there's no real reason for them to need to lie uh, because the revolution succeeded, uh, everything worked out just as it should. Like the princess's family is fine; they're in they're in exile and don't seem to have any intention on like trying to come back. Uh, and <clears throat> like they don't seem to have any particular the townspeople don't seem to have any particular. Uh, particular you know hate towards the princess uh so it's like why even do it i think that's 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 the one thing i i think the show never the this episode never really explained particularly well is why everyone is like uh persisting with the lie to begin with like even even the dude's speech at the end isn't particularly convincing or sensical. Oh, maybe maybe you have a different opinion, Aaron. I'm not sure. Like I, it didn't make sense to me at least. Mm. I thought it was okay. It, it it was kind of sweet in a way, but it is weird. Yeah, because it's like, okay, well, there's... Yeah, because, like, everyone would mostly be fine with it. I mean, there'd probably be some awkwardness of, like, oh, hey, hey, I, yeah, I'm the princess that you tried to murder, but it's fine because I prefer being living like this anyway. Like, it, all, of, all of the lies could be, like, easily avoided, but for some reason, they just don't resolve anything. Uh... And it's really just kind of more... It's portrayed as romantic, but it's mostly just sad that these people feel like they need to persist in the lie even though they 100% do not. And they seem to just be doing it because that's what they've been doing so far. Well, I mean, the townsfolk are genuinely trying to help him out, or rather not upset him. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, the most most of the, I, I yeah, most of the weirdness comes from the dude himself, where like he has literally no reason to persist with the lie, and the speech he gives is like, oh, I don't want to ruin the yeah, memories of what I rock had. The rock, rock the boat. Yeah. It, yeah, it just it just doesn't make any sense to me. I know, maybe maybe a listener will explain it to me, but it just, it felt completely superfluous. Uh, well, not superfluous, I mean, like, but completely pointless to keep the lie going, and I don't, if there was an explanation, I don't think the show did a very good job of explaining why it would make any sense. Um, I 
other than that, like I did like the characters as they were presented. Um, it's just the premise doesn't hold up, I, I think. Uh, so yeah, I think I'll give episode three a five, episode four a two, and episode five a three. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, All right. Yeah, I'll agree with that. On episode three, I will reserve. Uh, I'll reserve my rating uh, for episodes four and five till later. Moving on to Ancient Magus's Bride, episodes four through five, which very conveniently is a two-parter. Yes. So, yeah, it worked out really well, didn't it? Yeah, a very like kind of gruesome two-parter as well, uh, where we learn the story of this dude who's like uh, wife was terminally ill and he got suckered by this evil magic person to like slaughter a bunch of cats and use their blood to make a serum which he gave to his wife that turned her into like this sludge abomination yeah it'd be fine <clears throat> yeah it's all good trust me I like yeah. how she walks out the door and goes, oh yeah, thanks for the experimentation. You saved me a lot of time and trouble. And it's like, yeah. Yeah, like it's, we haven't really had a villain show up yet in Magus's Bride, so here's the villain. Actually, we, get, we get a couple of villains because the ones who come to stop her from doing it, I would call those villainous. Oh, yeah, they get a little too handsy with uh, Chise, that's for sure. She would have been fine had she not tried to struggle against the knife. <laughs> uh, also, like, uh, uh, Elias has an interesting way of sealing that wound there. Yeah. Using his weird monster tongue. <laughs> oh, it's the saliva. I mean, it's not weird for... The saliva to have healing, healing properties that comes up often enough. Yeah, I know, but it's still. <laughs> uh, man, I I watched these episodes a while ago, so I'm trying to remember well everything I thought about them. Like it was it was an interesting it was an interesting backstory, but also. Uh, I'm trying. I'm trying to put into words here. I, I wasn't. I wasn't crazy about how the dude went from like well-meaning but desperate husband to serial cat murderer. Uh, part of it was uh, he had him under sort of a spell. Oh, okay. See, I did not. Uh, yeah. I must have missed that part, or maybe it, like I did see it, but I just didn't understand the implication. Well, also his mind broke from uh, basically his wife turning into black sludge. Well, I mean, okay, yeah. yeah after that, that, after that makes sense. I'm talking about before when he was a serial cat murderer and still <laughs> kind of crazy already. Um. Oh uh, well, yeah. Well, that well that comes out of well that comes out of his desperation. Uh, you know, because, you know, this guy can, this, uh, 
this sorcerer convinced him that the only thing that would save his wife was, like, cat blood. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess, um, I feel like in a lot of cases, it's very, it's sort of a, a lazy plot device of, like, oh, yeah, of course, he becomes a, like, he becomes super terrible, uh, because of, you know, his wife about to die or something. Like, there's a lot of people I know who'd get very sad and desperate if someone they, that was close to them was going to die, they would probably not become serial cat murderers. Uh, again, the like, sorcerer influenced him slightly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think if I if I would have caught that, I you know, I, I probably would have been a lot more uh uh like it would be I would have been a lot less harsh on that particular plot point. Um I don't know. I guess it was it was a it was mostly just like a plot I wasn't really expecting from Magus's Bride, and it just felt a little out of place to me. Um, again, like I sort of knew, didn't know a whole lot coming into this about what Magus's Bride is, um, and like it's got like there were some dark elements in the prequels we watched, um, but. I don't know. It, the 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 first three episodes were pretty whimsical, and then like this happens. I guess I sort of just like sort of reacted. I kind of pushed back against it, even if it was like fairly well done, just because it yeah. it wasn't exactly what I was looking for out of the show. Um, it was a little bit of a surprise that you didn't expect. Yeah. Um, I I guess my my ultimate. F- thoughts on it um will it's going to be difficult for me to figure out how i feel about this like just from this arc alone um it's going to rely very much on the follow-through on it and you know whether or not the villain ends up being like a compelling and good villain and if you know the the conflict against that villain is interesting uh, th- there are occasionally shows that I find difficult to review fairly, um, you know, just going like episode by episode. I think this is one of those arcs that's kind of difficult for me to really review fairly just based on an individual episode. Okay. Because I think a lot of my feelings about how this arc played out will depend on what comes after. Uh, it just initially sort of wasn't what I was sort of hoping for from Magus's Bride. Well, um, yeah, another, an interesting thing about how this thing, about, like, okay, like, the villains, like, uh, you know, the villains in the present-day plot, you know, those, like, rogue sorcerers, I guess. Um, the thing about those guys is that, I mean, their main function, it seems, was to test like, uh, Chisei and Elias's relationship. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> it, it would, it would be nice if at some point we move away from the, uh, Chisei gets captured because Elias isn't really paying attention, and then Elias suddenly comes in at the nick of time to save the day. Uh, it's happened, like, three times in a row now, I think. 
Well, well, the thing is, in this case, in this case, what happened was it wasn't Elias coming to save the day. It was oh, actually right. cause, because Chise actually broke out herself. Right. Yeah. You know, Elias literally just licked her wounds. And then, well, and then he used his magic to get them to back off for a bit. Uh, yeah, that that does bring up, um, like, uh, I, I kind of want to tr- segue into uh, the first half of Dayriff's comment um, on the episode 347 blog post, because I feel it's irrelevant right now. I don't want to wait till the end of the podcast when everyone's forgotten about this topic. Um but he writes, uh, I think the relationship between Elias and Chise is creepy no matter how much the story tries to make it non-creepy. But on the other hand, that's not to say that breaking them apart would be better for Chise. Reading the manga and watching the show, I think the core of the story that everyone, everything arouse, revolves around is Chise's own self-loathing and sac- lack of self-worth. There is a girl. This is a girl who literally sold herself into slavery out of sheer despair and a desire to disappear. There's a gag way down the line in the manga where the auction house gives her the money she's owed from her own sale. Uh, behind all the individual story arcs is the overall story of Chise gradually building back up her own sense of self-determination and worth. The thing about Elias that makes him tolerable is that he never talks like he has the power to stop Chise from leaving him. He never says anything about how he paid for her and now she's his, or how she owes him, or how she can't leave. Which isn't to say that he isn't manipulating her constantly to try to make the case that she should stay with him, but that she's the only one who can help her and so on. But the narrative makes it clear that at any time, Chise could walk out the door and leave. You'll see that even in the first few episodes, she has people constantly telling her, if you don't want to be with Elias anymore, you have options. You can come to me and I'll help you. By always giving Chise the power to leave and options on where to go if she did, the story is just barely able to keep the power dynamic between her and Elias from being too creepy to be tolerable. Uh, I think that is a fair assessment. Um, and and def- it, that element definitely helps <coughs> helps keep the show from wandering into territory <coughs> that I would otherwise find, you know, a little too problematic to keep watching. Uh, is that... Go ahead. I was going to say borderline objectionable. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. you know, she says it there in the end where she's looking at him. She says, look, you know, I Elias is the first person who said that I have any worth. Elias is the first person who's loved me. Now, first loves can be good, bad, or indifferent. So I'm kind of looking at this as like, you know, um, she could have wound up worse. Yeah, well, also Elias, you know, very much does uh say like you know in in all the times when she say has like sort of gotten away from elias uh the first couple times she was either forcefully taken away or been deceived in the case of the the fairies who weren't really telling her the whole truth uh so like um elias stopped those instances because they weren't through Chise's own will. Uh, I think Ben makes a good point in that she, this time Chise does, you know, get out on her own. And Elias comes around just because she's, a, like, in danger of having her throat slit. Yeah, I mean, uh, the other thing is, is, like, the time with the aerials, uh, he knew from the beginning that she had left, and he let her go sort of, like, as a lesson. 
Yeah. I, and only I, rescued her at the the... last moment before she oh, came right. in. Oh, and... right. He... That's and right. after she uh, denied the aerials. Yeah, that's a good point also. Like, it, it, there is an implication that if she had gone with the aerials and been like, all right, yeah, no, this sounds good, he probably would not have stepped in. Mm-hmm. Um, he only comes around when, you know, they get to the portal and she's like, you know what, actually I'm not comfortable with this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so again, it's not him rescuing her necessarily. It's the collar she has, you know, I mean, basically it's a cat collar. He knows where she is all the time. He knows what she's up to. And, you know, he's letting her have her freedom, but he wants to make sure she doesn't go out and get herself annihilated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah the, or, or the have people force their will as on a her. cowbell also well, limit her on her power. Yeah, it, it's right. It is a throttle, too. You are correct. <laughs> But, but yeah, uh, it's it, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, you know, it, it's it's I can't blame people for you know still having issues with the the premise, but I feel like Ancient Magus's Bride does at least so far is making it as palatable as humanly possible. <laughs> see, and I don't have any issues whatsoever with the sort of thing because to me it's never been sort of creepy and I don't know where you guys are getting that from no I just well yeah well that's the thing is for yeah from my perspective what it does is like like the way it executes on this premise it avoids the traps like that would have made it creepy you know so like you know if if you know, if it had put any, if it put a foot wrong in any respect, then yeah, it would have been intolerable. But I, it just manages, it just manages to avoid, it just manages to avoid those pitfalls. My main issues with it stem from, and then this is pretty, these are pretty much my pri- my only issues with it, stem from, um, Elias having a very like sort of paternal and occasionally patronizing um not very often like and not sort of intentionally mean but still patronizing attitude toward uh chise yet also it's framed in the context of a romance um like regardless of how sexualized it is which so far it's not at all but it's still a framed in the context of a romance and having a sort of a sort of paternal attitude like that in the context of a romance is a little weird to me. Um, well, well, yeah, one pitfall, one sort of interesting quirk to the, quote, romance is that neither Elias nor Chise really know what love is or really know how a romance is supposed to work. I think... I, th- I think with Chise, that's probably accurate. I don't think they established that well with Elias. Like, I can believe you, but uh, that that is what's going on with Elias. But I don't think they've established that well so far. Um, because he's supposed to be, like, pretty wise, and it kind of just seems like he knows exactly what romance is. But, you know, he's, like, taking it super slow because, you know, she literally just met him. Well, the other thing is, is I think 
it would be better that she discovered romance on her own and not have her have him tell her about it. Yeah, yeah. the The whole bride thing, like, also uh, is is part of that. It is like he he forces that framework on the relationship. Um, that's sort of where the weirdness comes in, and the and like what you could call creepiness comes in. I, I think that's you're pretty much all where it lies. Thinking that. Well, yeah, because I mean, he he's making the statement that I would like for you to be my bride, but he's he's not made any of the uh, social moves that would say that you are my bride. I mean, okay, yeah, I mean, true, but even then, it puts the expectation on how that relationship work functions. Or okay. it helps explain that Elias doesn't understand how humans work, and that's the closest thing he can come up with. Yeah, I, I again, that's probably accurate. Um, but also, I don't think the early episodes do a good job of framing Elias as someone who doesn't really know what those words mean, because throughout those first few episodes, the episodes go out of their way to show that you know, even though Elias can be bad at like keeping track of her, like he still knows what he's talking about in basically every scenario. So I don't think, like, if 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 that's if that's what they're going for, that Elias it doesn't really know no. what a bride is. No. They failed at communicating that. Oh no, he well he doesn't. He knows what he's talking about when it comes to magic, and like the way the magical world works. But he doesn't. He doesn't really get human relationships. Yeah, I and I would I would say that. At least so far, the anime has done a poor job of communicating that concept. Yeah, they're leaving a lot to the listener's imagination to speculate, and sometimes uh, a, a word or two of dialogue to convince them that, oh yeah, this is actually well, what he's thinking. Well, yeah, uh, so the, anyway, other thing that stood out, other things that stood out for me these uh, episodes... It is just how beautiful they were. Oh, yeah. I mean, the show continues to be, like, visually stunning. Yes. Also, the music. The music is real good. Especially when events happen, you'll get the music in response. Yep. So this is why I music is very good. This is why I'm going to shamelessly give both episodes a five. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm going to give them fives. I think I'll give them fours. Okay. If you gave them twos, I think I would have growled at you. Oh yeah, no, like it, it's. I know. I've just uh, yeah. most of my issues with these episodes stem from like I'm not really sure how I feel about this particular direction for the show. Well, it, the relationship too is pretty shaky, and if the relationship was yeah. a little more solid, then you could work your way through some things that are going on. But they've not really solidified the relationship yet either. So yeah, I can see where you're headed. Speaking of places we're heading to, <laughs> I know oh. there's there's a conversation that happens um, that explains a lot of stuff, but I can't remember where it occurs, which is unfortunate. Anyway, next week we get Titania. I can't remember who that is. Don't worry about it. You'll find out. Okay, oh, yeah. cool. All right, I, I thought that was—I thought that was a name I was supposed to know already, and that I forgot from previous episodes. Nope, nope, nope. nope. Okay, this is new, char- right. new character. 
Okay. Yeah, this is this is new character who seems to be, uh, um, yeah, interestingly animated. We'll put it that way. Gotcha. Okay, so let's move on to Shokoku no Altair episodes sixteen through seventeen. Um, wow. Best yeah, things play. are. Go ahead. Things are coming to a head in Altair. Uh, and it, not everything is working out for our heroes. Uh, best laid plans of mice and men. Yeah. So episode 16 gives us a, a lot of the sort of setup for what the next arc is going to be with um, uh, Turkey and the other nations forming a uh, triumvirate, essentially, uh, in order to combat the alliance and they were hoping to do it and announce their alliance before the empire decided to start attacking in order to sort of like try and intimidate them but oh nope too late uh the empire like faked a plague uh to cut off trade lines and then did a blockade i believe yes uh to basically uh basically block them off before they could get any momentum. So now it's up to the leaders of the various nations to like get through the blockade and get their armies to the city in order to actually like push back the empire. But yeah, there's unfortunately there's a caveat uh, here, yes. Yeah, unfortunately, in order in order for Turkey to get its armies uh, to where they need to be, they need to go through Florence. And Florence decided not only were they not going to join either side, but they were going to make their own side. Yeah, I, I do like in a show where so far most of the characters have been male. Like, there have been some, don't get me wrong, there have been some really great like women in the supporting cast. But most of the major players have been male. Um, in episode 17, we, may, we meet uh, Catherine de' Medici yes. of Florence, Italy. And she's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I like how when she invites them to chat, she basically com- distracts... Uh, she, she just, oh uh, gosh, I, uh, why can't I remember his name? Suleiman. Suleiman. Oh, she, okay, well, she distracts Suleiman as well, but she really puts, uh... When he goes she to really, bend over to get his hat, yeah. Yeah, uh, Mama, yeah, she really puts Mama, yeah. Mamut on yeah. the back foot, because, like, he's not used to someone being quite so aggressively Aggressive. sexual. Uh, <laughs> so forceful. he does it. He's completely flustered, um, and he forgets to ask any useful questions. And yeah. they, like, point out after the, the meeting that, like, you know, we talked for a while in there, but she really only told us things we already knew. <laughs> she didn't tell us anything useful. Yeah. Um, it was definitely her conversation. Yeah, and, like, we, we also get some uh, backstory that... Uh, based on some bad things that Turkey did to Florence in the past, uh, Florence doesn't really trust the Turks very much. Yep. 
And so basically Catherine has two choices. She can either allow Turkey to uh, uh, have their armies pass through and probably get assassinated because of it. Or have a civil war on her hands. Yeah. Or she can reject them and then like form her own side in the conflict because, you know, it's not like she's bending the knee to the Empire either. So she uh, she takes the lesser of two evils and decides that uh, they're going to become their own independent union, and uh, uh, that's that. We're, we're taking we're taking we're taking no sides. We're not yeah, Switzerland, but we're taking most sides. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 an interesting uh, it's an interesting like uh, wrinkle in the plans um, that I was not expecting because it's like oh right yeah. It's, it's gonna go like usual, and you know he's gonna convince them to, uh, you know, uh, form an alliance or help them out. It's like actually no, we're introducing a, a third uh, major power into this scenario now. Yeah, wrinkle. No, this is more like dropping a sledgehammer. Yeah, yeah. She, uh, she definitely uh, made her feelings known. It's like, oh no, no, guys, this is how it works. Boom. Uh, yeah. It, Oops. It was. I think. I think episode seventeen worked a lot better than sixteen. Um, with sixteen, there was, I think, a little bit of filler there, mm. um, where you know there there was uh, you know the meeting to establish the alliance that was like fairly good, um, or I guess you know not so much filler, but it felt almost like okay, here's the stuff we have to get through. Um, to get to the next, like, actual, like, interesting political content. Here's all the stuff we need to explain about, you know, what's happening. Uh, I, I think probably the, the, there, there are some bits of the setup that went a, went a bit too long, like the whole explaining why the plague thing worked. Yeah. Uh, because I feel like I got that pretty much instantly as soon as they said it the first time, but then they repeated it, like, a couple times. Well, I'm wondering um, if they were for people who weren't so well-rounded in their historical past uh, to uh, uh, yeah. make sure they understood what was going on. Yeah, so like the episode 16, while uh, like largely solved, had what's um, had didn't have the greatest pacing, um, but 17 was very solid, and I really liked the character interactions in it. I really like how different Catherine is compared to the other leaders. Uh, she brings a very different, you know, style to these political debates. Style. Yeah. yeah. That, you know, that's, that's a, that's an interesting, uh, also, also much like Florence. Yeah. Also much like Florence itself. Catherine is hella stylish. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting word for seduction. Yeah. Yes. I, I talked a lot. I feel like yeah. Ben probably uh, has a bunch to I say. Think, I think your assessment I think your assessment of the the merits of these episodes is spot on and I agree with you. Um yes. so I'm gonna give uh, yeah, episode sixteen a four and episode seventeen a five. I'll agree uh, with that. You know, I, I, I believe that I could uh, concur with that statement. Yeah, she uh she, Catherine brings the artist seduction to a uh, Actually, well uh, executed. Uh, yeah, I, I love the bit when she was playing footsie with uh, Suleiman. Suleiman, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> and and you're like and she even has a moment where you know she she flips over a um portrait in her room and like the other side is Suleiman and you're like yeah I can understand why you you know yeah why she, you would have had a fling with Suleiman yeah it's like uh, you know well he asked me to you know be one of his consorts and I decided that I was going to be whatever yeah I, I could see where this is heading in all sorts of interestingly intriguing yeah uh, the, the, and the kids like uh, now what do we do <laughs> You need to grow up a little more, son. It'll it'll come to you in time. Trust me. All right. So uh, next, let's move on to Blood Blockade, Battlefront, and Beyond episodes four through five. Oh, uh, where it seems like uh, this season of Blood Blockade is very much focused on sort of doing character episodes, uh, where we get actually kind of a, a Chain Sumeragi got a partial. Uh, episode to herself in episode three but four is where like we sort of finally get an explanation of how her powers actually work Uh, an unchained Uh, chain yeah it's really interesting i also like how her gang is called like werewolves (laughs) even though they're not wolves at all like yeah. I kept expecting I kept expecting that to be like literal and th- and for them to like you know turn into something at some point, but no, they're just called werewolves for no discern- discernible reason. <laughs> what was especially funny was like yeah, they're, like their first mission when they like you know they like perfectly sneak up, you know they yeah you know, they perfectly infiltrate this guy's uh yeah you know, this guy's base and they like. And they miss all their shots at him. On purpose. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we just wanted to leave him a message. Yeah, you left him a message, okay. Yeah, I, I really like Sumeragi's, like, team. Uh, I, I wish that we had gotten a little more time with them. You know, hopefully they show up in future episodes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I... I like how this this episode reveals that Sumeragi's powers work basically like that. She's base she's Kitty Pride, but even more powerful because <laughs> she can essentially phase herself out of existence, and that's how she goes invisible. Um, complete with like the crazy. It even gets super shonen at the end where uh, she's like, you know, uh, infinite non-existence or something. <laughs> Like yeah. ultimate non-existence, uh, like phasing herself, spreading herself out through reality so, uh, so yeah. sparsely that she's like a that she's like a, a bottle of uh, homeopathic medicine. <laughs> uh, and it's, I've heard of spreading yourself thin before, but uh, that takes on a whole new meaning. Yeah, I, I wish the actual fight scene had been a little more interesting because kind of all, all it is is like okay her her friends get taken out uh, immediately and then the fight scene is basically her, her getting less and less visible and the final ultimate showdown is you know you can't see me anymore which man that's that must be a really easy ultimate technique to animate <laughs> 
well, yeah, put that way. Though, uh... though, though the part where the villain thinks uh, she has found Sumeragi and then she reaches out and then Sumeragi just like drops a gun on her finger <laughs> that shoots her in the head. That's that was pretty slick. Um, but it was just a sort of weirdly done final sequence. Um, and it was strangely like, I'm used to blood blockade doing more visually creative stuff. Um, and I thought that was, that will, that's what was going to happen with sort of how we would view chain's powers working. But again, it's kind of just showing an empty room for the most part. (laughs) So it was a little disappointing in that regard. I do like though how they bring her back though. Oh poor Steven, boy did he get schnuckered. Yeah, basically by threatening to go into her room when it hasn't been cleaned. Yeah. Yeah, it turn turns out like the one thing that can bring her back to reality is her own shame. And he and, and he thought he was gonna do something nice, like leave flowers for her, and no. No, she she ended up validating his parking ticket on the way out the door. Wham. Yeah, I like Shane I like Shane Sumeragi. I liked most of this episode. I wish there was a little more character work between her and the team, and I wish the fight scene was you know, had more going on visually, but it was still a fairly solid episode. They'll give a four. Yeah, I'll give it four as well. Okay, so now we're working to the Butler episode. Butler episode was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, Especially since we haven't really gotten any explanation of what that Butler's deal is. Nope. Like, he, as Leonard mentioned, like, the Butler with the bandages is kind of just always there. Like, sometimes you don't notice him, but he's always around. (laughs) And here you do get, like, a little more backstory on what his deal is. Like, there's a whole league of combat butlers. Um, He apparently has basic regenerative properties where, like, if you cleave his head in twain, he can recover from that. Which, I guess, explains how he's lived so long working for Libra. (laughs) Well, and that he's Klaus's personal butler. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that that was an important thing there. You know, oh, no, 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 no. He's Klaus's personal butler. Yeah, I I liked how every how shocked everyone is where Klaus takes tea from the new butler because it's like, oh, he's never taken tea from anyone other than his own personal butler before. <laughs> Surprise! Yeah, this this episode was pretty much full of little surprises. Yeah, I. I think, like, one of my standout moments for this episode, which I wasn't expecting, was where, you know, Leonard is taking the new butler on a tour. And, you know, the butler takes out, uh, like, Leonard gets mugged, um, and the butler, like, takes him out. Uh, But then Leonard reveals that, oh, that wallet was fake. I've actually got a bunch of money stored in various locations on my person. Um, you know, so if someone does figure it out and robs one of the correct places, like it'll just be a small hit, which I think is good because a lot of times, at least uh, particularly in this second season, Leonard has mostly served as kind of the butt of jokes. Mm -hmm. 
And it's nice to for the show to kind of go out of its way to say that, like, no, Leonard has survived this long for a reason. He may look like a dork and a loser, and he, you know, probably is. Uh, but he can be genuinely clever, and there's a reason why, you know, Libra keeps him around, you know, other than for his god eyes. Um, so it was nice for him to get that acknowledgement for once. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because I feel because I feel like too often he is the one who's like uh, whining or complaining or freaking out when everybody else is doing cool stuff. Not as much as Zap. How Zap just gets owned. <laughs> oh yeah, well also Zap deserves it, <laughs> yeah. so I'm okay with that. Yeah, I mean, if there's an episode that Zap doesn't get owned in, it's like, well, wait a minute, what happened? Although, although he was, although. Yo, know, Zap did come through in uh, in this in the in this episode by uh, basically using his blood powers to get hold of the uh, get hold of the brain. Yes. Oh yeah, both both Zap and the uh, the fish guy. Yeah. Um. Yeah, they both use their blood powers. I like how there is a like official device in their cool transforming you know butler car uh that is specifically made to channel blood powers mm-hmm. out the sides of the car that's pretty cool yep red yeah i like how that car has literally anything like oh it's got it's got jump jets it's got missiles it's got blood channeling devices it can like slice through a wall like a butter like a knife through butter uh it can do anything you need it's a, it's a car that batman always wanted but never quite could get his hands on yeah uh i had a lot of fun with episode five i think i'll give it a five actually yep same here yes ditto all right moving on to junie tyson episodes five through six it the show is really starting to fall into a formula. Um, at this point, I at this point I can pretty much predict what's going to happen. Oh, hold on, is that my dog? Okay, yeah, that was my dog. My dog was scratching herself and like basically knocking on my door because of it. Yeah, well, if this was Bambi, we'd call her Thumper. Uh, but anyway, sorry. Uh, so yeah, like the the show is getting super predictable in that, like, you can pretty much tell who is going to die, um, just based on the episode title, and also the fact that they're going to die in a very anticlimactic and fashion that is pursuant to their particular character flaw, and it's just super boring because like every other character is kind of just spinning their wheels while the show goes through their body count um like the only real surprise so far has been um monkey getting stabbed and i think it was episode six i want to say yeah episode Uh, episode six is where they really concentrate the death yeah Simply because, you know, Monkey is basically the only actual character they have in the show. Uh, Everybody else is super one-note. 
or already dead. Um, which makes me which makes me pretty convinced that she's not actually dead because just because it would be such a terrible idea to kill her off. Uh, and also, you know, no confirmed kill. She gets she just gets lightly stabbed. Well, um, yeah, the other. Yeah, I'll believe it when I see her corpse. I'll believe it when I see her corpse walking around, controlled by rabbit. Uh, let's just say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I actually yeah. what I what I actually I thought was interesting was the uh, was the way horse died. See, I I saw that coming from a mile away. I was like, oh, okay, right, he's gonna burn to death, right? Yeah, the, the place is gonna set on fire, and then he's gonna die because of that. And that is exactly what happened. He died because of smoke inhalation. I did not um, actually see that. I what I, I <clears throat> you know I I did not actually see that coming. Uh, yeah, so I, uh, I'll I'll give a nod to your predictive powers there. Yeah, I it's I don't know for for me it was like okay so far everyone in this show has died from like in an ironic fashion. Um, you know, uh, dog died because, you know, he didn't take chicken seriously and chicken crushed his head. Uh, chicken died because she didn't take monkey seriously and, um, uh, like ended up dying for monkey, uh, basically. Uh, uh, what's his name? Sheep died because sheep didn't take tiger seriously when, uh, when she was drunk and tiger killed him easily. And now, oh, it's, you know, a rat is warning horse about snake, but he isn't taking snake seriously. So now he's going to die because of burning because <laughs> the thing is going to get set on fire because that's what snake does is set things on fire. Um, it, the show has gotten just so formulaic that I'm just begging for anything even remotely close to character work or some sort of plot development to happen. But so far it's still just like ironic deaths and that's it. Uh, and anytime anyone ever gets character development, they are dying almost immediately afterwards. So it's it's hard to get invested in anyone other than Monkey, because so far Monkey is the only one who has gotten any development and has actually lived past the episode where she got development. Um, it's just such a frustrating show. Because there's a lot that could be done with the premise but it just sticks to the formula at all costs uh, well I'm on the lookout for Rat I think Rat's gonna I think uh, I don't know I'm, uh, I'm, looking, I, I'm looking forward to some good things from Rat yeah I, I'm, I have high hopes for Rat too but also it's so frustrating to be this many episodes in and I still still have zero clues as to what the heck Rat's deal is. Uh, it, it's really <sighs> frustrating. Um, 
because again, like Rat is one of the few other characters who's even remotely interesting, and the show just absolutely refuses to talk, to talk about like what his whole character is. Um, like even during extended sequences where Rat talks with Monkey, like, uh, I'm gonna give these episodes, man. Uh, I'll give episode five a two and six a three. I think. Uh, I'm gonna give them fours. All right. Moving on to Garo Vanishing Line episodes four through five. Uh, now these were pretty fun. I'm still really, really enjoying Garo. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, like, Garo 4 was uh, the... Garo was the uh, the priest's sister. Uh, turned out right. turned out to be horror because uh, it turned out her brother, the priest, was controlling and abusive. Yeah, which, I mean, not super surprising because that is a thing in Garo. Like, it's, uh, it's very much a show about you know that we've seen this before basically um so the that particular plot line itself wasn't super interesting to me um the interesting part about episode four at least for me was how sophie interacts with the rest of the cast and also how sword consistently reveals himself to be kind of smarter than he lets on uh, because at first, like, Sophie just assumes that Sword is trying to flirt with the girl. But actually, she knows what's going on, and he's doing horror hunting. Um, and I really like the fight scene at the end and how Sophie contributes to uh, helping the horror, oh, helping Sword defeat the horror. Um, that's the part of episode four that I liked. The, yeah. the actual, like, backstory was very just sort of up you know stereotypical garo it's like oh here's a bad thing um without a whole lot of depth to it um it's pretty much just there to uh justify what the horror is um but everything else around it i think was pretty solid i um i yeah the setup for the horror i thought was you know pretty standard but well executed um, so I'm not gonna, I, you know, I'm not gonna knock on it too much. But, yeah, I, but, I liked, uh, but I liked, uh, Sophie's, uh, I, I liked Sophie, and, uh, I'm liking her more and more. Yeah, it's nice to have, like, a child sidekick character who is actually good and not terrible. <laughs> uh, and not irritating. Um, and, and she meshes, meshes well with the rest of the cast, I think. Um, which it, which becomes even more prominent in episode five, which I really liked, where, uh, basically, um, Sword and, uh, Sword and Gina pretend to be a married couple, Sophie pretends, and Sophie pretends to be their daughter in order to infiltrate this, like, a party for this rich lady who has become a horror. Um, and I really love the image of Sword attempting to wear a button-down shirt. <laughs> yes! 
It was like, it's like, that was like, yeah, they couldn't find one that fit. So it's like he's practically like he's practically popping out of it. Yeah, sword shirts and sword and shirts do not get along. Like he is not meant to be fancy. I like how no one comments on it though. Well, everyone just like this is normal. Uh. Well, that's the thing is a guy like sword. You don't. Uh... <laughs> You don't say you don't say mean things. You don't say mean things in his presence because yeah, he's pretty built. Yeah, I also appreciate how episode five, like when I think about it, is essentially a role reversal of episode three, where like in episode three, uh, Gina is sent in to do like the sexy seduction and stuff uh, to distract them, dis- distract the people, while Sword does the heavy lifting. In episode five, Sword is the one who is given the task of the seduction, while Gina and Sophie do the actual like heavy lifting infiltration. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I I really appreciate how they like sort of flip that on its head, um, and like uh, Sword becoming increasingly flustered and being like. Clear, Sword is clearly not good at this, uh, where he's like, okay, things are getting, like, uh, a little too uncomfortable for me now. Uh, are you, have you, like, got done your job yet? Please? Please? Yeah. Yeah, it's also, you know, you know, it, it's a, and that's the thing, is that, you know, it's like, he likes a big, you know, he likes big-breasted women, but... Not when they're horrors. Yeah, not when they're, like, actually evil. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's... I, I appreciated how the, the characters interacted in Episode 5. I thought the setup for the mission was pretty clever. Uh, I liked seeing Sword kind of go out of his comfort zone for a mission. Um, and all in all, episode five was pretty fun. So, I think I'll give episode four a, four and episode five, a five. I'm going to give them both fives. All right. Moving on to Inuyashiki, episodes three through four. Um, yeah, so this, this is a, these are the episodes that convinced Larry to maybe not, <laughs> do any more of Inuyashiki, which is fair. Uh. Uh, let's put it this way. Uh, I have a comfort zone, and I thought it was relatively broad, and I was kind of okay through episode three, but getting into episode four... <clears throat> episode four had my skin crawling. Yeah, like, Inuyashiki episode three still has some dark stuff, but generally speaking, it's a lot less graphic than episode two was um it's a lot more subtle well i also well i think the the thing about that is that you know yeah they didn't need to because with episode two they made their point and they're not gonna and they're not gonna beat it and they're not gonna beat it to death because yeah you mean you saw like like episode two you see what happens when like uh when shushigami uh 
you know, walks into a house and goes bang, bang. And, yeah. you know, and so, like, at the end of episode three, he does that again, and it's just, like, it just shows him walking into the house, him saying bang, bang, and then he walks out. Yeah. Also, it's helped because it's balanced out by, like, both, like, sort of the sheer goofiness of watching uh, our, our main character, our hero, like, sort of, like, very poorly fighting some gangsters, <laughs> uh, but kicking their butts anyway. <laughs> right, because, yeah, because that's... He's kind of just flailing around, but he doesn't need to know how to fight well, because, like, he's a, like, alien war machine. <laughs> yeah. He's a combat robot, yeah. Yeah. He has. He's a super. He's a super fighting robot. He has no. Go. He has no fighting skills, but he's an indestructible cyborg. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So it's it's just really goofy, uh, and I think that helps bring the tone back down. Um, and it also helps that you know a lot of the episode is devoted to him finding out more about his powers and like like learning he can fly uh, and like saving people from a burning building. And like healing a injured cat, and then like then walking into a hospital and healing everybody in there who has cancer, basically, <laughs> like. Um, and also there's the, the there's a scene near the end of, um, the villain's friend going like, "Look, dude, no, I appreciate that you care about me, but." I can't be friends with a person who kills people like it's nothing. Um, and I appreciate, for a moment, I was really worried that that dude was about to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciate that they stay true to how they have established the villain's character and that he doesn't care about anyone except for the people he considers his friends. And even if that friend disagrees with him and doesn't want to be his friend anymore, doesn't want to be around him anymore, like, he's going to protect him still in his own, like, completely screwed up way. He's not just going to be like, okay, well, you're dead then. Um, I appreciate that they are consistent with his character and don't just make him a, like, sort of like, plot device psychopath, I suppose I would say. Um, like, he has he has a character and a motivation, and even though he is, like, literally a sociopath, he has a logic to his actions. Um, which I far prefer over sort of the typical Crazy Eyes villain that we typically get in shows like this. Mm-hmm. Um... Episode four is rougher, um, and in a way that's a little harder to justify, uh, simply because like episode four deals like explicitly in uh, in rape, sexual assault, and kidnapping, um, and it's like very explicit in that regard. Well, uh, also it also says that the powerful can do whatever they wish. Yeah, the it also like I, I think episode four is 
so I, when we first started watching Inuyashiki, I, I read the tweets that uh, Fathomless Blue made about how, um, you know, the create the the writer of you know both Gantz and Inuyashiki tends to go super extreme in order to justify the actions of the hero. Um, and I think this is the episode where that criticism rings the most true in that the villains established here are so vile um, and the villainy so explicit that... Yeah, so explicit and repulsive that uh, that um, our main character, our, our hero's solution to it, um, in, in, in any other context, would be horrifying. Um, but in this situation, you almost, like, you're tempted to go, okay, yes, they deserve it. But and but I think it's it's still important to say, okay, but do they, though? <laughs> um, just because I am aware of that criticism of this guy's work. And how, like, you know, because there is a, well, like, one of the problems with the criminal justice system in real life is how people will justify uh, certain barbaric practices within the, the justice system by saying, oh, well, this is necessary because, you know, and then they'll list, like, uh, like say oh we have to protect your children from gangsters and rapists um and this is the sort of thinking that can lead to that mob morality uh, yeah and though like the way that the gangsters are dealt with in this episode like it's understandable why he would choose the solution he does because he doesn't want to kill people but also he doesn't want to allow the gangsters to be able to do anything either um but at the same time you have to consider like if like <clears throat> is is that severity even okay well um the other thing is is that it wasn't yeah is that yeah he basically blinded and crippled like everyone who attacked every you know basically yeah, all, all the whole all gang. of those all of those gangsters are paraplegics all of them are now blind um yeah but the but the, the other thing about that in yeah i guess they're kind of you know sort of uh, ma- manipulating it you know in order to justify his actions but uh, the thing is is that he actually like before he you know went into his thing he he like he gave them a chance to back down you know and they scoffed at the little old man surprise surprise yeah i i think it really brings up um it's sort of like it's the superman question basically um or the batman question in that like we know that superman is invulnerable we know that Batman, even though in the universe he's human, he is essentially invulnerable as well. No one's going to kill Batman. Um, and so there is a reason why Superman has 
both Superman and Batman have clauses against killing. Uh, but also at the same time, you know, there's plenty of criticism with some Batman stories where in some of those Batman stories, like, it seems to relish in Batman kind of, like, brutalizing his enemies. This is particularly true. Uh, this is a particularly, like, serious criticism about uh, the recent Batman games by Rocksteady where Batman breaks a lot of limbs um, and it kind of goes, it almost, like, makes it seem cool that Batman is breaking a ton of limbs uh, and just how sort of like weird that is to be sort of glorifying that kind of thing. Uh, I think Inuyashiki episode four uh, kind of treads a very thin line where I don't think, at least not yet, I don't think his solution is glorified the the big laser blasts are I don't think portrayed as whoa super rad because I at the end it shows sort of the consequence of that and how like super troubling it is um like yeah. like when it pans across you know what happened to them it's very disturbing but also that's juxtaposed by his speech at the end which is very much sort of in the heroic speech mold it uh, i'm really not sure i've got a lot of conflicting feelings about the end of this episode because of that um and i think it, it's gonna really take more episodes for me to see like whether or not fathomless blues criticisms end up resonating with me or if I end up feeling like the show does address the fact that, you know, even, even though you're doing these things for the right reasons and not actually, like, killing them, like, is that still really better than what the villain is doing uh, in certain scenarios? Um, are you just using the fact that they're villains as an excuse to, you know, use your powers? Um... So that's going to really depend on how the show goes from here. I think episode four, how it ends, you could really make a strong argument either way. Well, um, well also, con of, also a contrasting case there. And that, okay, there's also, there was that incident in episode three when, uh, you know, when Inuyashiki, like, helps that, like, you know, these uh, guy, these, like, Actually, kind of probably low-level gangster types. Uh, you know, when they when this guy complains about them about them cutting in line at the taxi stand, they're like, "Yeah, okay, they're they're about to beat this guy to death," and you know, and Inuyashiki steps in and beats them up. Yeah, in that case, like he just punches them out, though. Right. Like, so, so think it's a much more low-level thing to. Right. To do it. So the point is, so the point is, is that, uh, is that Inuyashiki actually, he mostly uses proportionate amounts of violence. Like, in that, like, against this, against these guys who are gonna, you know, beat this dude up, he beats them up. You know, but then against these guys that were, like, you know, like, threatening to, like, basically 
you know, threat like threatening to you know they kidnap this girl. They're threatening to like they're threatening to rape her and like basically turn her into a drug addicted <clears throat> prostitute. Um, yeah, and I mean... and and you know, and and not only that, but like when he asks nicely, he asks nicely, and they don't back down. I mean, it. So I mean, obviously they weren't going to. Right. Um. Yeah. I. I don't think. I don't think him asking nicely is a way to justify yeah. the actions. I. I think saying it's proportional is a better way to justify it. Yeah. That like what. What is necessary to prevent them from uh, following through with what they promised? And you know, it, it's a it's a question of how far do you need to go? What is the minimum about, amount of violence that is required? Um, you know what, if the show actually goes into that question, I think that is valuable. Um, if the show ends up just like sort of portraying him almost as the Punisher of like, oh yeah, violence is cool when it's done to criminals. Then I'm gonna be a little less cool about it. So, but again, I think it's a little too early for me to say one way or the other, which is why I'm being so wishy-washy about it. Um, because there's elements of both right now. Now, see the the element that got me was the reason that the old man took on the gangs at the first first get go. Yeah, the, 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 I think the, there's the first, also the, the first scene where the first unfortunate girl was being dragged out of the apartment because she'd kind of accidentally OD'd, um, and then uh, him driving down the street and just looking out the window and seeing something. He says, "Oh, hey, that's nice. I think I I like that. I'll just take it because I can do things like that because I'm all omnipotent and all powerful and nobody will nobody will mess with me." Well, that leaves a very bad uh, leaves a very bad image that's the word I want to use image yeah it's uh, I, th I think the better question and, and sort of more metatextual question is was this actually was the level of extreme they go in this episode specifically actually necessary to ask that question no. Um, did did we need that level of sexual exploitation to ask that question? Um, I you think know. I think that is a more solid question that can be asked of this episode, and then that you don't really need additional context for. And you know, I I would be lying if I said you know I don't think we needed it to be that extreme, especially since rape is used as a plot device so often and just so rarely executed well at all. <laughs> well, here's the thing. This episode assumed that the viewer was born under a rock and had no idea any of this was going on around them. And anybody in the real world will know that, uh, yeah, this stuff happens, unfortunately, more often than not. And I just, I'm sorry, it just, uh, no. I, get, I can only go so far and I have this, this episode took me to that point. It took me to a point of uncomfortable, and that's where I stopped yeah. watching stuff. Well, well, one thing I gotta respect this for is that, I mean, okay, think of it in the think of this think of the show in the context of superhero stories. You know, because the thing about a thing about a thing about superhero stories is that they're basically fantasies of justice. You know, and. 
this is, but I mean, and so this sort of gets into that, but it also gets under your skin. Okay, but for what purpose? Like, if it, if if you are going with the this is a deconstruction of superheroes, for what purpose? Um, you know, why was it necessary to do a sexual exploitation plotline? Why was it necessary to? show the female character naked on a bed with the villains like dick literally out and censored with like a katana to her throat why was what was the narrative purpose of that agreed um because that is going to a um like really not go over well um with certain segments of people watching it, like myself and Larry, um, who will find it to be yet another instance of a female character being exploited sexually uh, in order to motivate a man. And B uh, is at risk of bringing back very bad memories for people who have actually suffered under sexual assault, where there was no super robot man there to save them. Uh, so the big question is why that, why that presentation? Um, and I have found that in almost in a large majority of cases, the answer is just because, you know, they want it to be super extreme. Um, I'd say one of the few times when it's actually done well is actually the first episode of Psychopaths where, um, the even though it's handled kind of clumsily, the whole point in the first episode of Psychopaths um, is that the sexual assault victim was um, was like traumatized so badly that it actually reflected on the psychopath meter and made her a valid target. Um, and, po- and it was meant to say that in like certain violent crimes, they are so extreme that they can uh, negatively affect uh, like their victims in a very in a lasting fashion. And those victims like need sympathy and care. That is a situation I think where sexual assault actually served a purpose. It wasn't handled the best. But there was clearly a reason why they chose that particular crime. Uh, yeah. In Inuyashiki episode four, I don't think they justified the use of those themes. No. And uh, like again, the, you know, the plot the plot would have worked just as well um, if, like, you know, the with with, with some other reason why the the victims were being like the the couple was being like uh victimized by the gang like maybe they uh hit maybe they insult the boss or something i don't know but like there or, are plenty the of old, other ways missed, the old you missed the payment routine yeah like there are plenty of other ways that you can justify that you can have the these yakuza dudes like just ruin this couple and not bring rape into it but they did because that's extreme and it 
makes you, uh, and, and it sort of makes you root for the hero to give them what's coming to them, regardless of what the hero does. And, and that is my main issue with the episode. <laughs> yeah, it's too much vengeance. <clears throat> yeah. Anyway. Well, again, if they'd have set it up different, if they'd have used any different theme uh, besides the sex and the kidnapping and the rest of it, I mean, there, there's there's plenty of things they could have done that would have been just as persuasive and just as, but just that for, that format just, just rubbed me exceptionally wrong. I think, for me anyway... I mean, I can see where you're coming from, but for me, I think it avoided going too far. Yeah, I, I don't really agree with that. Um, well, you know, that's that nice thing about having four individuals here. There will always yeah, be yeah. a difference of opinion. Like, and and again, like, even even though I disagree with it, I'm just like I think it's fine as long as you know. All right. Uh, no, I don't think. Uh, let me try to rephrase this. Uh, it's not that I think the the anime itself is fine, but I think it's fine to be okay with it as long as you're asking yourself the question. Like, if you come to a just different conclusion, that's perfectly okay as long as you're keeping that question in mind. Um, because I think it is, at the very least, important to reflect on it and to, and to interrogate it on it, and to ask yourself like. Does this serve a purpose? Did does it go too far? Is it just there to be exploitive? Um, and if you come to a different decision, that's totally okay. Uh, my main concern is like asking the question and holding sort of shows accountable for the topics they cover. That's a, um, that's a valid point. Yeah. Uh, so in Iyashiki, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I really liked episode three. I think I'll give episode three a five. Uh, I'm uh, going to give episode four a three, I think. I'm going to give them fours. Uh, I'm probably going to raise an ire here, but uh, four and a one. I mean, that's, that's fair. Um, given the content of episode four, I don't blame anyone for dropping it entirely. Um, just because I, that's what content can, if, can if affect people in wildly different ways. If the episodes are going to keep bouncing back and forth between the two characters, just seeing how far they can go before one thing or the other. I mean, they're going to get together. There's going to be a big war. Somebody's going to win. Somebody's going to lose. And if they decide to be chummy chummy and join the same side, that's it. I'm glad I dropped it when I did. But I, I this, this, you know, who, 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 how far can we go? this week to upset whatever i i don't need that there's plenty of other yeah, things and to do. like to be fair if more episodes are like episode four um i will struggle to keep watching it i think as well um but right now i'm sort of operating under i'm giving it the benefit of the benefit of the doubt and sort of like going under the assumption that oh okay well the, they even though i disagree with how extreme they went i think the purpose was to uh, you know, push Inuyashi, it pushed the hero to his sort of extreme, um, and then to sort of like establish that baseline for what he's willing to do. Um, and I'm hoping 
that other episodes won't be like that. But we'll see. Again, it's the dude who created Gantz, so I have no idea. I haven't read the manga, so I'm not sure where it goes from here. But yeah, a lot of how I feel about the show will require me to watch a few more episodes, I think. Mm, more power yeah. to you. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I've been... I've, I've read some of the manga, and uh, what I've read... Uh, yeah, it doesn't go that far in terms of sexual violence uh, in any future chapters that I've read. Alright, well, that's, that's good to know. Maybe. Alright, so moving on to something that's a lot more lighthearted, though I guess more existentially terrifying... Uh, Land of the Lustrous, episodes one through five. Um, I'm going to call this, like, uh, these next couple reviews, the uh, Fathomless Blue Was Right block. Yeah. Uh, Because I had completely ignored Land of the Lustrous and and recovery of an MMO junkie. Uh, And then, like, the past couple weeks, I saw Fathomless Blue tweeting about them and going, like, Oh yeah, Land of Lustrous and MMO Junkie are like my favorite shows this season. I'm like, well, Dang. I suppose I should give them a shot then, <laughs> uh, well, because I was watching none of the shows that Fabulous Blue really liked this season. Well, I was pushing MMO Junkie last time. Yeah, um, I guess I just love Fabulous Blue more than you, Ben. I'm sorry. Uh. <laughs> I feel. I feel um, I feel unloved. Wow. Yeah, okay. On with the reviews. Uh, look, to be fair, I did watch Hunter Hunter because of you, so you've got that under your belt. Okay. Um uh, and, but and yeah, Aaron Land has forced Lustrous. us to watch some things too. It's true. Yeah. But yeah, Land of the Lustrous is very good and it's it's an it's a CGI anime that actually looks quite good. Uh the CGI actually works very well. And not in, and, and not in the sort of like oh this is passable sort of janky way that Knights of Sidonia did, um, it actually like looks good. Yep. Uh, uh, Fos is a starts out very difficult to deal with. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a kind of a bad person to start out. Um, but I think her, but at the same time, I think the specific ways in which she is a not a very good person are entirely realistic and relatable. Um, honestly, I just I think all the characters in this show are very solid. Um, my favorite is Diamond, but I think all of them are very good. Uh-huh. Uh, I also really like the world that this show has created, where. Much like Nier, um, the video game Nier, it's sort of a post-post-apocalypse, um, and you're sort of piecing together the history of this world and what happened through conversations the characters get in and like plot plot developments that happen occasionally. And what it says about the world is mildly frightening uh, in what it implies. Uh, yep. And I just really love the visual design of Land of the Lustrous and sort of how how the gems look. Um, I love the reveal with the snail girl. 
where you know when they get back into the water and the snail reverts back to the form that it should look like and it's like oh you're a monster girl and you have giant boobs <laughs> uh and then you meet her sister and her sister is rad um and how like the the luminarians who are implied to be like the souls of humans look very uh, i'm trying to i'm trying to remember the they look vaguely chinese warriors well chinese war uh tibetan yeah yeah very tibetan yeah uh in origin um, and they're sort of like heavenly and uh, they're heavenly in kind of like a terrifying fashion. Um, a lot of a lot of stuff in this show is not terrifying in a traditional way, but more like when you stop to think about it for a moment, the implications are um, scary. Yeah, you, this this show has a woe factor to it. Yeah, it's. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that I could say about Land of the Lustrous, but I also don't want to spoil a whole lot. Uh, yeah, I um, I have I've only seen the first episode so far, and you yeah, well, really need you, to see more of it. Yeah, I know I'm I'm up. going to. I've downloaded the rest of the episodes, and uh, yeah, I, yeah, I watched I watched all five in a single sitting. Yeah, I didn't do that bad, but I've kept up on it. Uh, yeah, well. I guess what we could do next time is to go into a little bit more depth when Ben's seen what's been going on. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about episodes six and seven in more detail. Um, but I think for now, like it's just worth it to say, hey, this show is very good. Um, same thing with MMO Junkie. Uh, I've, MMO Junkie. I have MMO seen. I have seen this. Okay. And so I, this is also another one where I marathoned all five in one sitting, and. MO Junkie pulls off two things very well uh, that I was not expecting. First of all, it is a rom-com that I enjoyed. I almost never enjoy rom-coms. <laughs> Secondly, it is a good MMO anime, which, man, it's a miracle to find one of those. Uh, oh, wait a minute. And... You mean Sword Art wasn't good? <laughs> so that's another thing. I'm glad you brought Sword Art up, because... Uh, MMO Junkie actually tackles a lot of topics that back when we were watching Sword Out Sword Art, I explicitly mentioned I wished Sword Art had delved deeper into. One of those things being um, the way that avatars are used in MMOs to, you know, escape from one's own gender I identity or to experiment with other gender identities. And like MMO, MMO Junkie, like it doesn't go like super deep into that topic, but it does bring it up and like actually talks about it and how important like being able to create a custom avatar, um, one that may even be a different gender from you, and how important that is to people, uh, and it explicitly mentions that as being important, which is something I always wish that uh, Sword Art had got had actually spent any time on. Um, it does a lot of things that I wish Sword Art had done, in fact, uh, which is all the more impressive. Uh, 
it also has like a main character who is just like a horribly awkward nerd um who in in a typical show like this especially one where the main character was male would just be obnoxious but it treads a very delicate line in making her like very likable and sort of making you want to root for her to succeed and not be such a horribly awkward nerd <laughs> there's well, nothing um, wrong with that yeah well one thing that the one thing that was interesting uh for me was uh there was that bit there was a bit in episode three when like like the male leads like his friend actually you know is like reflecting on like his interaction with uh with uh the main character yeah and, mori mori chan yeah yeah <laughs> right and how like you know when like he, he like interacted with her sort of you know on the phone at work and and you could see like you know you could see like why she quit because like you know he interacted her with a point where she was just you know she was turning into a total burnout case Oh yeah, mm-hmm. you know where where she was like on the phone talking with him, and she was like practically in tears, and not because of anything yeah. he did, but just because of the situation. Yeah, and so it's like, yeah, that's <laughs> it's like it's like you know, it's like when I saw that bit, I was like, okay, now I know why she quit her job and just like stayed at home and decided to stay at home and play MMOs all day. Yeah, there, there's also a, it also does a lot of stuff like with just MMOs and making commentary on them that feel extremely real. Uh, like during one of the segments, uh, you know, they're telling a story about how their guild came to be, and like the original guild leader was gonna leave and just nuke the guild, and the one who's leading the guild now basically convinced him to stop, saying like, "No, you can't demand." Like, you can't destroy all the friendships we've made. And also, it's a waste to destroy a max rank guild. What are you doing? <laughs> it took so much grinding. Um, and the one I think that hit hardest to me, uh, hit closest to home, was in the loot box episode. Where the MMO released, like, this, uh, this like, uh, new loot box banner with a bunch of items that everybody wanted. And them going like, look, never, never say what you want the most because you're not going to get it. And also don't like, don't spend hundreds of dollars chasing the loot box prizes. Yep. (laughs) Yep. As a person who plays, as a person who has played several different gotcha games, um, it highly relatable. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate the person. I really appreciate how this show really gets, like, the social experience of playing an MMO. Yeah, and also how fashion is the true endgame of all MMOs. Yeah, I've watched people tap their credit cards real hard to buy gems so they can get in-game stuff, and it's like, why? Yeah. Why? But yeah, it's, uh... I'm, I'm not... I don't think MMO Junkie is a, like, sort of, like, super intelligent and, like, amazing show. It 
in, in a lot of ways, it's very sort of tra- it's very sort of like traditional rom com stuff. But is it is presented in a way that is just very pleasant and appealing, um, and wrapped in the framework of an MMO group that actually feels true to life, and isn't meant to dunk on anyone or, uh, or on the opposite end of, end of the spectrum, it's not meant to make playing MMOs seem like super cool and for badasses who are good at getting girls, like it's just. The MMO is just an MMO, and it is important for some people to get their to get their social interaction through that method. Yep. And it's just presented in that way, like you know how people actually use MMOs. It's not glorified. It's not. It's not reviled. It just is what it is. Um, and it, it's probably one of the most mature ways I've seen MMOs presented in. Amazingly. Cool. Um, so yeah, it's just like a generally pleasant show to watch. Uh, this, it's not going to blow any minds. Um, but it is a very nice way to spend your time. Hmm. I might have to take a peek at this. Yeah. It's, and actually like, I'm going to read the rest of Darius comment here because he talks about, uh, lustrous and, uh, and MMO junkie also known as net Jew. Um, so I'll, I'll go ahead and read those because that's it for our uh, actual reviews. Oh, aside from, I should mention real briefly, uh, in the latest episode of Dragon Ball Super, uh, the two uh, Saiyan lesbians uh, use the Potara earrings to fuse together, and now they're kicking Goku's ass, and it's great. So, <laughs> come at me. Okay. Come at me, Fathomless Blue. Okay, I... I think I heard a gauntlet drop there, but I'm not sure. Dragon Ball Super is great. Uh, That's my final stance on the matter, because it's got lesbians who are beating the main character. Um, anyway, okay. let's move on to Darius listener comments here, because I think they're uh, they're good. So, first one is, having been watching, have been watching and enjoying Girls' Last Tour. It's scratching that haunting scenes of post-apocalypse desolation itch nicely. Uh, yeah, that's another one that I am planning on getting through. It's just that I had already marathon Land of the Lustrous and MMO Junkie, so I just did not have much time to watch Girls Last Tour. But that's the one I'll catch up on next. Oh, good. Uh, then you really... and I can talk about it along. I think Ben's is Ben caught up on that. I've seen the first episode. I haven't. I <laughs> dang. Yeah. See, that's yeah, we just... refi- we we grabbed the wrong five shows. I've watched everything yeah. that we're going to end up reviewing. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. I guess we'll just end up like swapping out some of these things. I guess, uh, but I, I just find I just find it really funny that Fabulous Blue's favorite shows this season are Land of the Lustrous, Girls' Last Tour, and Ammo Junkie. None of which I had been watching until now. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Anyway, uh, his second comment is: I'm watching Hozuki no Reitetsu second season. Because a comedy about the staff of hell is right up my alley, even if it leaves a lot of viewers cold. Hey Dustin, you have the literary education. What's the term for a protagonist who never really has character arcs themselves, but rather acts as an axis around which the character arcs of supporting characters could happen? Uh, That's the title character, Mr. Hozuki's gig. Um, So I'm not sure if there's a literary term for that, but I would usually call that character a catalyst. Yeah, 
I can understand that word. I mean, there may be an actual literary term for it. If there is, I just don't know it. But I would typically refer to that kind of character as a catalyst um, because the show isn't really about them, but more about how they enable the other characters to have their arcs. Uh, well, Hozuki is kind of an ensemble. It's kind of an ensemble show. I mean, although, yeah. You know, although Hozuki is the main character, but, you know, a lot of, yeah. like, a lot of the action of each episode is, like, is, you know, showing, like, the, you know, the other characters and their issues. Yeah, for, from the episode I saw of season one, that definitely seems to be the case. I may end up trying to get into uh, Hozuki again, um, if, if I've got some time, Uh but like the the its style of comedy just didn't super appeal to me. Um, I I totally get why people would like it. It just wasn't my bag, really. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, the thing about it is, it, is it makes a lot of like references to both high and low culture. You know, and some of which some of which I don't even get. Yeah. You know, because it's, you know, because, you know, I mean, although, like, there's the occasional anime reference that I get, but, you know, there's also, like, myth like, references to literature and mythology and just, like... Yeah, that because it's a Japanese show, it assumes it's, it, its primary audience is a Japanese one, so it assumes, like, you get the references because you've been steeped in that culture. Whereas, like, we really haven't. Like, we know some stuff, but... You know, we didn't grow up in Japan, so we don't have that innate understanding of um, cultural references. Yeah. Hi, hi. Uh, anyway, uh, Land of the Lustrous has the best cliffhangers, though it's so weird I'm constantly on the verge of dropping it. Oh, it is pretty weird. Uh, I, I think one of my favorite descriptions was like when... Um, I think it was episode four... No, it was episode four or five. I can't remember which, but uh, Fabulous Blue was tweeting about it and like sort of tweeting screen caps of the char- of the designs of the some of the characters' environments and saying like the most frustrating thing about Land of the Lustrous is that it proves that a CGI berserk could actually l- work really well. <laughs> I can kind of see what he's getting at because there are certain there are certain scenes in Land of the Lustrous that are reminiscent of Berserk. Weirdly enough. Well, yeah, but the thing is, they were, like, I mean, I, like, from what I, the first episode, like, like, the CGI stuff works because the characters are gems. Well, I mean, even, even when they get into more complex designs, I think it still works pretty well. No, yeah, but they, but they still, even, even with more complex design, they still have the gem-like quality, and... Which lends itself to being CG animated. I suppose so. Yeah, I, I, I just think like the main issue that CGI Berserk had is that like there were some real janky animations going on there, like way more than you know you can really forgive as being like oh it's low budget. It's like no, it's just like yeah, atrocious. Yeah, I think yeah. Actually, I read there were some articles on ANN about that, uh, <clears throat> where yeah, it was that. Like, well, the problem was is that the uh, the director and the staff were basically just didn't have the skills, didn't have the skills to pull it off. 
you know, they, they, they were trying something, they were trying something they had, like, not enough experience with. And. Yeah. Alright, uh, and then finally, uh, so Netju no Susume is basically a, a recovering of, of an MMO junkie. Is basically a Shakespearean romantic comedy. It has all the classic elements: lovers separated by their own hang-ups, people masquerading as the opposite gender for reasons, ridiculous coincidences, and a protagonist just doofy enough to be lovable. I'm really enjoying it, and at ten episodes, I think it'll just be long enough to be a nice compact story. Uh, he then goes on to explain the premise, but which we kind of already did, so I'll just skip that part. But yeah, I I agree. It is, it does like. I didn't think about it at the time, but calling it Shakespearean actually makes a lot of sense. And it's like, yeah, yeah, it is actually pretty Shakespearean when I think about it. Um, right, because because it, it's it, it's actually one of like the rare cases where like essentially where where cross dressing actually where cross dressing actually works and serves the story. Yeah. Um. But yeah, like I, I definitely agree that it's 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 very it's very traditional. Um, it's a very traditional romantic comedy, but also it um, presents those traditional elements in uh, and twists them with the MMO uh, element in ways that you know make it very enjoyable. Um, so yeah, I also I did not realize it was only going to be ten episodes, which I'm kind of glad about actually, because um, yeah, it seems from what I have seen so far, it feels like ten episodes will be just about right. Cool. But yeah, so I believe that'll do it for this episode of BakaCast. I don't think we have any other uh, oh. listener comments or questions. Let me check audio entropy real quick. I did find one uh, comment uh, like a couple <clears throat> weeks ago, but it ended up being spam. So, <laughs> dun, 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 okay, yeah, dun, dun. no, uh, no other comments. Uh, so yeah, uh, that'll be it for this episode of Boggy Asked. Um, I should be. I need to collect um, Luke's audio for Kimono Friends, uh, but I should be posting that hopefully by next week so uh so what was and then yeah so what's the next crappy show that uh, you're gonna force luke to watch oh so the next thing i'm gonna do is actually i'm going to do a re i'm gonna do a watching of neo yokio with some of the audio entropy people so i'm probably gonna i'm gonna be scheduling that for the baka cast off weeks uh to do those recordings. Uh, so i'm probably well i've seen okay. neo yokio and Oh boy, <laughs> I have I may have things to say about it. Yeah, I'll let you know uh, what time I've decided on. I might do it on Thursdays, like usual, just in between when we usually record the normal podcast episodes. I'll I'll figure it out. Um, okay. But yeah, I'm planning on doing probably like two covering two episodes of Neo Yokio per recording, so it'll take three recordings to finish it all. Uh, okay. Uh, do you know what two weeks from today is? Uh, yeah, it's Thanksgiving. Just saying. Right, that's a good point. Um, hmm. I think I can work it if you guys can work it. 
I mean, like, we could do it either early. We could record that week's podcast either earlier or later in the week. Uh, like, that'd be fine for me. Uh, uh, Wednesdays, uh, would, Wednesdays would not work. Any other day would work. Uh, I think I could be Thursday. If you could be Thursday and you could be Thursday, then we could be Thursdays. But I just brought that up in case somebody had turkey plans for Thursday. Uh I'm, I mean, I probably will. I'll probably be over at a relative's place, so I kind of don't want to do it for Thursday. But I'll, I'll figure something out. Well, I, I, this is your two-week warning. All right. Uh, Two-minute so anyway. warning? No, no, no. Sets football. Two-week warnings? Those are baka cast. All right, so it seems I've got some uh, scheduling to take care of. Um, exciting, I know, uh, which is why I won't uh, force listeners to hear about it. So, uh, without further ado, um, you know, if you want to send questions or comments to us, uh, feel free to do so uh, through either projectharhi.net, uh, audioentropy.com, or through our email address at podcast.projectharhi.net, uh, or, you know, send me a tweet at uh, StiltsTheGM on Twitter. Or send me a tweet um, at DeathSlinky. Uh, and, yeah, Ben? Dustin? Three, two, one. Kiribush. Have a wonderful time and watch anime because it's better than terrestrial TV, still. Outlander's awesome, though.